So we are going to be in between series for about four weeks, and when I say series, and what we like to do, or what I, I should say what I like to do as a preacher is to work through books of the Bible, and though we can't, well, we could go through all the books in detail, um, but it would take us probably a year at least to get through a book. So I like to pull on threads through books and rotate between gospel, Paul's letters, and Old Testament. So next, we're going to be jumping into the Old Testament, very short book, but very loaded book of Jonah. And so if you haven't read that since you were a kid in Sunday school and heard that story, maybe go back, take a look at that. That's going to be coming up in about five weeks. In the meantime, um, we're going to have Judy preaching in a couple of weeks, and then I'm going to be doing a mini-series on Um, some foundational um, parts of what it means to be part of any church, but we talk about this especially here as being foundational elements of who who we are as a church. And those are the things that you find hanging on these banners on the walls, Um, Jesus, family, and mission. And those can be talked about in different ways. Uh, A lot of churches who um, emphasize these and talk about these and teach on these will talk about gospel, community, and mission. Gospel, of course, Jesus is the heart of the gospel. Um, community, family. Family is a loaded and painful word that some people would rather get rid of, but it's throughout scripture that this is what God does to us. It talks about adoption. It talks about brothers and sisters in Christ. It talks about all of these things. So the community that we have is a family community. And then, of course, mission, this outward emphasis and outward sending focus of the Holy Spirit. If you're wondering, three, that's interesting. Uh, There's a lot of threes in Christianity, and it's not a coincidence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we do a longer series that I teach on sometimes, and sometimes we do these in our missional communities, on gospel foundations, we go through and we talk about how um, these relate to God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how those things, when we work them out, we see that they make us a family of missionary servants as our identity. But this is going to be a, a really a, a very high-looking overview, and we're going to be entering into a few scriptures as, to ground us as we move through this series. The scripture we'll be looking at this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> verses 1 through 8. So as a, as by way of introduction to what we're talking about today, we're going to be talking about the first one of these, Jesus or the gospel. I want to talk to you about the idea of um, why it's important for us to understand this. So to get into this, think about if you were watching a sport that you knew nothing about. This isn't hard for me because whenever I see cricket on TV, I know nothing of what is going on. The sport is completely confusing to me. It makes no sense. If I learned the rules, it would help make sense. But I mean, just imagine if you were, you know, dropped into our culture and you had never seen a soccer game or a football game or a baseball game, and you're sitting there and you're looking down in the field and you're trying to figure out why are these people running around? Why are they stopping sometimes and not others? Why are guys throwing colored flags in the air? I mean, what is all this stuff about, right? You don't know the rules. It makes no sense to you. Uh, The first time I did this series, I pulled some obscure rules straight from football, but this time I have some more generic, obscure sports rules that I think are really interesting that you may not know about. I certainly did not know all of these. Um, So the first one has to, it comes from the world of baseball, and this happened not that long ago where there was a 
a minor league player who struck out after one pitch. And you go, okay, how does that happen? Because if you know baseball, it takes three strikes and you're out, right? That's a lot of people know that if they don't know anything else about baseball. Well, there's a rule in baseball, and those of us who umpire do know this rule. I've never used it. Tom, no doubt, knows this rule, okay? And that is that now, and especially they're really emphasizing this in Major League Baseball now because they want the game to move faster, that you have to stay in the batter's box. If you're a batter, after a strike, you can't back out. If you don't go back in the batter's box, the umpire can call, start calling strikes on you. So there was a minor league player who was arguing the first pitch with the umpire, and the umpire just gave him two more strikes, and he was out. He wasn't in the batter's box when he was arguing. So he struck out. So there's a little rule you may not know about. For those of you who love football like I do, you've probably seen the fair catch. I remember getting yelled at in college once because I did not call a fair catch on a kickoff return. I was a lineman, and the ball came to me in a poot, what they call a pooch punt. They're trying to get the big guys up front to drop the ball. And I was supposed to wave my hand over my head and call a fair catch and catch the ball. The play stops, and the, the offense gets the ball right there. And usually when you watch football, after a fair catch, the offense comes on the field, and they go. But did you know that there is a rule in football that actually you can kick a field goal right after you catch, do a fair catch from that point in the field. And you can do a field goal attempt, and when you do it, the long snapper doesn't have to get down and snap the ball back to you. They just, they just get to hold it, and then the defense has to start from 10 yards back, and you can take a field goal attempt. I've actually never watched a game where this has happened, but it's a rule in football. Um, golf, if you love golf, you might know there's all kinds of, um, golf is pretty basic. There's some, some weird rules, and this is one of them, that you cannot build a stance in golf when you're hitting. You cannot build a stance. This means like using things to help you prop yourself up so you can hit the ball, right? Well, it just so happens that back in 1987, there was a professional golfer who violated this rule, and it was someone watching on TV who caught it because he didn't, I, what was the golf, golfer who did it? I don't remember who it was now. Oh, you know this. <laughs> sports trivia man right there. You and I were going to sports trivia night, John. And so he, he didn't want to get his pants dirty. And so he put a towel on the ground because he was doing some kind of a shot from his knee. I haven't seen the video of this. But apparently a fan saw that and alerted the PGA, and they actually um, gave him a penalty. And it changed his whole scorecard. So that's when you didn't know basketball. Basketball, the playoffs are going on right now in basketball. There's a rule in basketball. You've probably heard of the free throw, right? The guys have to stand on the side. It's called a free throw because you get a free shot. No one can do anything. Well, there was a strategy that was used once by a team in the playoffs because if you go up and block a free throw, right, and the guys now are totally big enough to be able to do this. So someone shoots a free throw and you step out and you run over and you block it. It's a technical foul. Well, a team was down by three, and the coach decided to go for this strategy because if you do a technical foul, then they, they, the other team gets two shots, but then you get the ball back. And they wanted to guarantee that they would get the ball back because on a free throw, if you shoot and the shooter misses, the ball could rebound off and the other team could get the ball back. But he wanted to guarantee he would get the ball. So he had one of his players run up and swat away the free throw. Technical foul, two shots, and then the other team gets the ball back, which I thought was interesting. I'm not sure how that would work exactly, but that's, that's one of them. Okay, one more. Tennis. If you like tennis, did you know that if your hat falls off in the middle of the match that it's considered a let? If you know tennis, there's a rule about lets, right? And so the, the stroke has to be replayed, or the, the point has to be replayed, right? I don't even know my tennis terminology. 
So there you go, some obscure sport rules. I mean, imagine you're watching a game and one of these things happen and you'd be like, what is going on? I, I thought I understood this game and then something like this happens and I don't have a clue. Well, it's the same thing when we're talking about the gospel. Many of us who grew up in church or have been around the church for any amount of time, we hear that word gospel. We may even know that the word means good news. But if someone asked us to tell them what the gospel was, we might panic a little bit. We, we get a lot of complicated theology if we're around the church very long, and that's okay. But sometimes we need to step back and just say, what is the essence? What is the basic elements of this good news that we talk about? And as we enter into the discussion on the gospel, we're going to be talking about the gospel as being Jesus. The, Jesus is an embodiment of the gospel, and he's the one who shares the good news. Um, and then we're going to be talking about community and family and mission. What I want to say as we begin this series is that if you can think about a tripod or a three-legged stool, all three of these are essential for the church. If you take any one of these legs out, you've only got two left that can't stand anymore. And throughout the history of the church, the church has tended to emphasize one or the other, sometimes almost to the complete exclusion of some of, the, some of these. Um, and so there's a, re, a reclaiming right now in a lot of North American Christianity of mission because that's been a missing component. Not the, we think of sending mission. We'll talk about more of that than when we get there, like overseas mission. We're talking about the mission that God has called every one of us to. So these three things are essential. And if we lose even, even one of them, we don't have the church. So when we talk about the gospel, what are we talking about? And to do this and to enter into this, we're going to read um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 together. I'm just going to read off the screen. Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you. I should mention this is the Apostle Paul. It's right into the church in Corinth. Which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless somehow you believed it for nothing. I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. Most of them are still alive to this day, though some have died. Sorry, we're getting a little bit of a delay in this. Then he appeared to James, James being the brother of Jesus. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as if I were born at the wrong time. I'm the least important of the apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I harassed God's church. I am what I am by God's grace. And God's grace hasn't been for nothing. In fact, I've worked harder than all the others. That is, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. So then, whether you heard the message from me or them, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do we hear in there about the gospel and what it is? There's three things that we hear very clearly in that passage in 1 Corinthians as Paul is sort of summing it all up for us. The first one 
is that sins are forgiven because of Jesus. And I think this is the one that we, we hear a lot about. And we could spend, we could definitely spend a whole sermon talking about this. You know, what are sins? What is forgiveness? But just, again, in, in a big picture view, understand that the gospel teaches that all of us, no matter how good we think we are, all of us have rebelled against God in some way. Sometimes unintentionally, but also sometimes very intentionally. We have rebelled against God. And we have, we could call that disobedience too. I mean, we, we might hear something like, um, you know, love your neighbor. And then we see someone who's in need and we say, oh, I'm too busy. And that's disobedience. And we know there's something we should do. We choose not to do it. So we've all rebelled. We've all disobeyed. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus' death on the cross, that that was, however this works, and this would be atonement theory, we could dig into it, but however it works, what we know about it is that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave offers us forgiveness for the things we've done in the past, the things we're doing now, for the things we're going to do in the future. And this is the first important element of the gospel that we read there in 1 Corinthians. The second thing was that death was defeated because of Jesus. And I know that we as, as Christians have sometimes simplified that message to when you die, you go to heaven. But understand that the, the defeat of death was tied to the curse of sin. And the curse of sin infected all of our lives. And so when we talk about death being defeated because of Jesus, we're saying that his resurrection connected us into a source of new life. Jesus will describe this when he's talking to one of the Bible teachers of his day as being born again. It's sort of a new birth. And when we are baptized and when we're lifted up out of the water, that's a sign of the reality that's happening in us now, not just someday. When we baptize people, we don't say, you know, when we baptize this person, when they come out of the water, it's going to be like what will happen someday after they die and go to heaven. We say, no, this is what's happening now in this person's life, though we can't see it. The, the resurrected Jesus is bringing new life. Death has been conquered and is being defeated in our lives now. And yes, once we die, of course, once our bodies, our mortal bodies die, we will also, again, experience resurrection and eternal life. The third thing that we see in this text is that we are reconciled to the Father because of Jesus. Reconciliation, again, is one of those words. It's a big word. We kind of throw that around a lot, but it's super important to understanding what the gospel is. Reconciliation means being made right with someone. So if you have an argument with somebody, especially if you have an argument with someone you care about, those can be very painful at times. Sometimes they can be so severe that there's a, a broken relationship. And it may even keep you up at night. It may sit in the pit of your stomach as you think about that broken relationship. And I hope and pray that all of you have had the experience in your life where at some point you were able to reconcile with that person. They may have happened a lot of different ways. Maybe you took the effort, maybe they took the effort, or maybe they never took the effort, but you did. But what happens is the relationship changes, of course, because of that. Many of us who have experienced this kind of reconciliation find that our, our relationship has not only changed, it's actually more beautiful than it was before, having gone through 
that process of brokenness and reconciliation. And this is what the gospel teaches us that happens between us and God. There is a broken relationship between us and our creator. And because of what Jesus did, we were finally able to be reconciled with our father. We're finally able to have that relationship with God that we weren't able to have previously. And that God is present with us and and with us as we go through our life. And this happens, of course, because of the forgiveness of sins, because God can't remain in the presence of sin. So this is really the gospel in a nutshell. If you want to look at the three important aspects, when we say the gospel is good news, this is the good news that we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. And it's all, as you'll see, as you see, it's all about what Jesus has done, not about what we have done, but it's about what Jesus has done. And as we go on and we talk about the gospel, I want to say, because this is super important, that it's not just something we think about. It's not just, oh, those are three interesting points. Let, you know, I can write those down and I can know that. Okay, that's great. But the gospel, the good news, is that there comes with it power and purpose for our life. Power and purpose. Power, what we have been saved from. So the gospel says we've been saved. From what? We've been saved from something. That's the gospel power. We are being saved from something. That's gospel power. We will be saved from something. We're going to look at that in just a second. And then there's gospel purpose. We haven't just been saved from something, but we've been saved for something. This is what no, you know, all the philosophies that we get out there in the world. There's some incredibly intelligent and amazing philosophies. There's some very complicated and very intriguing and interesting religions. But what the gospel, what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us is purpose. This message that we have all been created for a purpose in this life. We're not an accident. We're not just floating around trying to figure things out. And the purpose we've been created for, a little bit of a spoiler for you, the purpose we've been created for is not simply to obey God. Okay, yes, we obey God, but the purpose is to be part of what God is doing. We'll look at that in just a second. So gospel power and gospel purpose. So when we talk about gospel power, we're talking about what we have been saved from. And when we talk about gospel power, We can talk about the power of the gospel both in our past, now, today, in our present, and we can talk about gospel power that will happen in our future. So we can talk about the past power of the gospel, maybe. There we go. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. This is the past power of gospel. In the brackets at the end, I'm going to give you the theological words. If you, you want to know when we talk about these things, this is what we're talking about. We call this justification. This is kind of a, a legal word, something you could use in the courtroom to say someone's been justified. They've been cleared of their guilt. They've been declared innocent. The past power of the gospel says that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin when we read it in the story that's in the Bible, is death. Again, it's death that affects us both today, but it's also a death that affects us in the future. It's the permanency of death. It's death as the end of story. The past power of the gospel is that when Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus 
conquered death and rose from the grave, that we now have been promised this justification so that death no longer has that power over us. That's the past power. The present power of the gospel, which is where, if we're honest, a lot of preaching resides in this, which is great, and I think it should, but we just need to recognize that the gospel is a lot bigger than just what it can do for us today. The present power of the gospel says that we are being saved from the power of sin. We call this sanctification. Now, for some of us, this is a hang-up because we go, well, wait, wait a second. I thought I was saved once and for all when I said that prayer, or I was, I was saved once and for all when I was baptized. But when we read the scriptures carefully, we see that we need the ongoing power of the gospel in our lives today to experience God's ongoing salvation. And it's really poor teaching in the church that has caused this confusion. Because when we look at the scriptures, baptism is the moment, is supposed to be the moment of of new birth. The time when gospel power takes hold in us but it's not just a moment of salvation, it's the birth and the beginning of salvation that continues on through our lives. We have reconciliation, that word we just talked about, and communion with God and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. But we need this ongoing power of the gospel or we would end up right back where we started if we don't have the ongoing power. So one of the ways we talk about this is in the gospel when it says, in the gospel, in the scriptures when it says, that we were slaves to sin. In other words, that before Jesus came into our life, even though we didn't recognize it, we were serving a different master. That's what that language means, slaves to sin. That all of our own selfish desires and all of our own wants and needs and all of our own, you know, being consumed with who, you know, what we want, need this day, that that ruled us. We were slaves to that. But the present power of the gospel says that, we, that that has been conquered in our life and now the Holy Spirit has taken control and so we can experience the power of our gospel, every, this gospel every single day in us and in our relationships. So we have reconciliation today. That word reconciliation I talked about earlier, it's reconciliation with God, it's reconciliation with others, and it's reconciliation with creation. When you look at the scripture story, you see all of these woven together. That's why when Jesus was asked, we talked about this in Matthew, what are the greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor, right? Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with others. And then the reconciliation with creation comes in as the fullness of that. And if you want to look through Revelation, you can see the the path of that as we look forward. Because in the beginning, that's what God created humanity to be, the stewards of all creation, So the power, the present power of the gospel means that these things are happening in your life. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I'm not going to spend so much time talking about reconciliation with God. I already touched on that. But the present power of the God, meaning reconciliation with others, means that we no longer have the right to write off relationships as hopeless. If you are writing off relationships in your life as hopeless as if they can never be fixed and unreconcilable, I'm telling you right now, while that may be very much more comfortable to do that, the power of the gospel says that nothing is impossible for God. 
and that God is at work. If God, if Jesus can reconcile us with our creator, Jesus can reconcile us with our neighbor, with our family member. It may take a miracle. Don't get me wrong. It often does take a miracle, and it often takes a lot of patience. But I want to tell you, if you want to experience the present power of the gospel in your life, do not write people off. God, remember, never wrote any person off as hopeless. And I think most of us, if we told our story, we could say, I thought God was going to write me off as hopeless, and he didn't. Therefore, we don't with others. And the, the theological word up there, sanctification, in other words, this is growth. The present power of the gospel means that we are growing. We should be growing. So we don't live in guilt. We don't, we don't hear the message I just gave and say, I'm such a terrible Christian because I have totally written these people off. We go, oh, maybe this is an area I could grow in. This is sanctification. This is the power of gospel in our life today. I will tell you that, you know, growing up, again, this is another quick example. Growing up, I viewed um, the natural world, the created world, as sort of my playground. I grew up in a beautiful place in central Oregon, and my life, when I had the chance, when I wasn't doing sports in school, it revolved around fishing and hunting and mountain biking and swimming and rafting and rock climbing. I mean, I was just, I was outdoors. I mean, that's what I loved because I loved being in God's creation. But it wasn't until I got older and I began to allow the, the power of the Holy Spirit to work in me that I realized that it wasn't just mine to enjoy, but it was also mine to steward. One of my greatest joys, and this may seem silly to you, that some of you will appreciate this, one of my greatest and simplest joys and pleasures in life is simply working in my backyard. You know, I have my, I have my beehives over in the corner, I get to kind of help, you know, steward this colony of 40,000 bees, you know, a couple of them. Um, I have my garden over there that I've, I've sort of have written off this year, unfortunately. My wife hasn't given up, but, you know, when I get a chance, I love to do vegetable gardening. I, I love planting trees. I love learning about the, the native species that are growing in this area and the things that aren't native, and that's just my little, my little piece, but I also know and believe, and I'm trying to live out the fact that God has called me to steward this creation in much larger ways. And that the behaviors I have today impact either rebellion against God's call in my life in this area, or recognize the power of God in my life. So, you know, I can't get into that too much without people feeling like it's getting political, because it would be. I mean, if we allow God to work in these areas, this gets very political. It affects the way we vote. It affects the way we live, the things we buy, all of it power of the gospel. Okay, the third one is the future power of the gospel. The future power that we will be saved from the presence of sin, and theologians call this glorification. And in other words, we know that sin is still going to be present in this world until Jesus returns. But we look forward to not just a day, and this is just such a, such a misrepresentation folks, of, of the gospel message to say that someday I die and I go to heaven and I'm happy. Okay, that's a small piece of it. The gospel story is so much bigger than that because it says glorification means that sin is eradicated, that everything is now whole. Everything relates to each other in its perfect place. No more sin, no more disease, no more war, 
no more death. I mean, all of those things are put to an end. Glorification is not just about us, although we get to experience it, and we should look forward to it, and I do. But glorification is about getting to experience all of creation the way God originally intended it, and none of us have experienced that yet. So that's a future power of the gospel, that the gospel can do that, and we believe that, and that is our hope. We sang about that in the creed we sang this morning. So keep a big idea of heaven when you talk about heaven. It's so much more than just us being happy and getting to hang out with grandma and grandpa, although that's fun too. Okay, so that's the, that is the power of the gospel. I said the second piece was purpose. The purpose of the gospel, and this is going to be much shorter. I could spend longer on all of these, but again, we're kind of doing a big picture overview. I want us to see all of these. So the purpose of the gospel is what we have been saved for. When we get to mission, we're going to talk more about that. But understanding that God's plan is to restore all of creation, setting everything right. We just talked about that future power. That's God's plan. That's where God is headed. It's including our relationship with God being set right. And get this, according to the gospel, we are essential to that plan. (laughs) And that's why you see sometimes people like Paul, you read today where Paul's like, I was the least of all the apostles. I was like the last one born. Um, You know, it's like, God, if we are plan A, do you have plan B? Because we're not sure. We're confident in this plan. This is the gospel message. Humanity is part of this plan to restore all of creation. So we're called disciples of Jesus. We're called followers of Jesus. We're called the church which the Greek um, behind that is the sort of the called ones or the gathered ones. That's our identity. And we should be able to see this gospel in our community. We should be able to see that purpose being lived out and being worked out. And so one of the questions I want us to always ask is, would this community, would Stanwood Camino, would this community miss us this church if we were gone? Do we have enough of a purpose driven, and I don't like using that word because there's a book like that a long time ago that kind of, those of us who have experienced it don't like that language, so, um, but do we have enough of a sense of our purpose in this place that we actually see it lived out in this community and the community experiences it? That's the purpose of the gospel. So, is it power or is it purpose? And the answer is, It's both. Because if a church focuses only on the power of the gospel, those things we just talked about, past, present, future, the church focuses only on the power of the gospel, then a church will become inward focused and will always be asking the question, what can the church do for me and for my problems? But what if a church has purpose and not power? Same problem. The church will become very outward focused And that's good, but it can become, how can we change the world? And it becomes all about social justice instead of relying on God and God's guidance. And that's why it must be both the power of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. I want to end by giving you one more image. Some of you will recognize this because I used it before. And it's just, to me, it really helps me get my head into this. If you think about a soldier who's fighting in the trenches of World War II, I like having a specific place and time, thinking about that. Maybe 
um, one of those battles, you know, like the Battle of the Bulge. That was World War II, right? So one of those major battles. And you think about being a soldier in one of those battles who finds out and believes that he is guaranteed not to die. Not only that, he's guaranteed that his side will win the battle. So now, the penalty for fighting in that war, is, which is, would be death or dismemberment, right? That penalty of fighting is gone. And now the power of the enemy is gone because the enemy, he knows the enemy can't kill him. And he knows that eventually even the presence of the enemy will be gone because his side will experience victory. What's the soldier's response? Sits back in the trench and opens up his sea ration, right? And just says, okay, guys, have fun. I know what's going to happen. This is great. This is good. I mean, I suppose there are some who, who might respond that way. But I imagine that most soldiers would now suddenly have the courage to do everything they could to fight and save and help those around them, knowing that all of those things are true. The guarantee of these things, giving courage to enter the battle with new strength and vision. Likewise, friends, this is the message of the gospel. The penalty is gone. The power of the enemy is gone. And we know that eventually even the presence of sin and the enemy will be gone. Victory is assured. So we could sit back and just enjoy the ride or we could use that to enter into the battle that God has called us into. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear this, we can receive it as truly good news, not just for us, but for the world. It's not the message that we have sometimes been heard that the good news is that some are going to hell, but it's the good news that you, your power is at work to save every single person we meet in this life. Father, help us to be your faithful servants, your faithful soldiers in this life. Help us to be the ones who recklessly love and forgive just as you have recklessly loved and forgiven us. In your name we pray. Amen.